0: Hello, and welcome to A Million Other Choices, I'm your host, Kim. I had to be vague in my description of today's case because I know you, and you are like me, and some crimes, for whatever reason, although you understand the tragedy of them, just aren't that interesting for you, and I didn't want you to skip over this episode because it doesn't appear to fit your true crime cup of tea. So I hope that you'll stay with me on this one because it's one that the trial judge, when he sentenced the perpetrator, actually burst into tears and basically said that what he has done, or what he had done, was so terrible that his crime had no name. Like he couldn't even give a name to what he had done and for what reason. So I hope that you're gonna stay with me on this one. This is the Sa'akushan tragedy. Yes. My friend Lori literally right now is saying to herself, why is she doing a French Canadian story? She cannot pronounce anything remotely French. And you are correct, my dear friend. Prepare to cringe your way through this episode. There were so many names and so many places that I am going to completely butcher. So just sit back and enjoy it. I really wanted to tell this story. And when I started doing the research, I saw these French names and I heard Lori's voice in my head telling me that I'm a fool and that I'm just going to embarrass myself and I'm okay with that because it's a story that deserves to be told. The motive for this one is insane, so if you are right now thinking, I don't think I can even listen, yes you can. You'll be fine. It's going to be okay. We're going to do it. Now I'll be honest, most of my research for this case came from two in-depth articles. One was posted in the New Yorker uh, back in 1953 called It Has No Name by E.J. Kahn Jr., and then there's It's not quite a book, it's more like a novella. It's called, now in English, it's called Guilty uh, by Dave O'Malley. On September 9th, 1949, commercial airline travel was pretty much a common thing, believe it or not. In the 1930s, it was still something for only the very rich to do. But when the war ended, planes were divided up. They were sort of like divvied up amongst the airlines. Um, So they did a lot of expansion, and a lot of this was due to these DC-3s, which were the workhorses of World War II. So although we are going back in time many, many years, air travel was pretty much like it is today. But obviously security was a bit less intense, and the meals and service was better. Okay, so maybe not quite like today, but still a a safe way to travel, although regular folks were still a bit nervous about it, uh, which we're going to get to a little bit later with the very cool fact. Anyways, on that morning, Canadian Pacific Airlines flight 108 was sitting on the runway of Ancelouette Airport, which was just west of Quebec City. The flight was actually operating as Quebec Airways. Um, Flight 108, but was owned by Canadian Pacific Airlines, which was an offshoot of CP Rail. Now, CP Air was originally started as bushcraft operation, but because of the surplus of planes after the war, they had expanded to more commercial stuff. And this flight was what was called a milk run, which is just a delivery of mixed cargo. And that cargo included some passengers. The flight had originated in Montreal and then was basically traveling eastward the length of the St. Lawrence River and was going to make a bunch of stops along the way. It wasn't a large plane, there was only 19 passengers, so from Anselouet it was going to stop next at uh, Baikamou, which is a paper pulp mill industrial town, and ultimately it was to end up in Seven Islands, which is a fishing village. The pilot was Captain Pierre Lorraine, who was from Montreal, a 30-year-old husband to Margaret and father to two-year-old son, Bruce, with another baby on the way any day now. And there was a flight engineer, which is like a co-pilot, named Emile Thurin. He was a six-year veteran of the RCAF, or the Royal Canadian Air Force. He was also married and from Montreal with two sons, Pierre, who was five, and Michael, who was four. Flight attendant Gertrude McKay, who everyone just called Trudy. She was from Lethbridge, Alberta originally and had joined CP Air after her husband died in a car accident. She was currently living in Montreal with a roommate who worked in the control tower at the Durval Airport. Apparently, Trudy had been off sick for a couple of weeks and this was her first day back at work. For passengers, we have three executives from the Kennicott Copper Corporation. They were on their way to Bay Camus. Earl Stannard, who was close to retirement, um, Russ Parker, who was Earl's to-be successor, and Arthur Stork, who was um, to show them around this new mining site. 24-year-old Lionel Dallaire, um, he owned a garage station and was returning home to Montreal from visiting his sister. Two inspectors with the Bank of Montreal, Cecil Humphreys and Alfonso Keller. Two men from the Ontario Paper Company, Bill Scholler and Ed, Ed Calnan. 32-year-old Henry Paul Bouchard, his wife and their baby. They were coming home from vacation in Sorel. 47-year-old Beatrice Furlot, She was a widow and going to go see her sister. 37-year-old Romeo Chapadou was with her 11-month-old baby and teenage kids 14-year-old Florette and 13-year-old Jean-Claude. A woman that I could only find named as R. Durette, A high school phys ed teacher named Harold Pye. And lastly, Mrs. Rita Guy. Rita had been sent to Bay Camus um, by her husband who wanted her to pick up a couple of cases of jewelry that he had purchased and had put into storage there. So Rita was a bit flustered because, well, for one, she was a housewife. So it wasn't normal for her husband, especially in 1949, to ask her to do something so important for his business. And also because it was put on her at the last minute and her husband... Um, Joseph had basically shoved her into a limo to get to the airport that morning without any real warning. And one of the things they did back in that day was also bring on board parcels that were to be delivered. So some packages were carted to the door and Emil, who was the co-pilot, stowed them like there was a place near the cockpit for them. And one of them was a brown paper bag marked Fragile containing something fairly heavy. Now the plane was running a little bit late and that's kind of important later but not really late like just a little bit off schedule so they did their safety checks and took off and the plane left at 10:25 a.m. on September 9th 1949 and over on the north shore of the St. Lawrence River that morning was a 35-year-old eel fisherman named Patrick Samard who's just doing his thing and can hear coming from the southwest a twin-engine plane coming along breaking the silence the only other people around were some railway workers about five of them working on the tracks at the base of a bluff at ten forty, there was a loud explosion according to patrick quote there was a puff of white smoke then the plane fell into the trees with a big noise like a ripping of my tents the plane lurched and then debris started to fall Patrick told reporters that he saw what appeared to be a human leg falling from the sky as the plane plummeted to the cliffs above the railway, railway line that lined the riverbanks. And one of the railway workers was Oscar Tremblay, and he told reporters, I was near four other fellows working along the tracks when I heard some sort of explosion. I looked up and saw this big plane suddenly turn and head for the hills north of the railway line, It struck a big cape that sticks up near the shore of the St. Lawrence, but on the island side of the St. Lawrence. Obviously, the six people that witnessed it were completely stunned. The plane appeared to have literally fallen vertically from the sky, like just dropped out of the air. So all of them started scrambling up the cliffs to make their way up to the crash site, expecting to see the whole thing engulfed in flames. But instead, there was no fire at all, but the crumpled remains of this aircraft and basically crushed body parts and people, including two infants, scattered everywhere. A completely gruesome scene, and to this day, still the worst mass murder ever committed in Canada. So within hours, absolute chaos ensues. There were rescuers, the QPP, reporters, insurance assessors, investigators, and even family members of the passengers all clamoring their way to this wreckage down these steep banks. They were tagging bodies and loading them onto horse-drawn sleds to take them to coffins that were lined up in train cars on the tracks below. And of course, CPR officials were there equally hoping to rule out equipment or human error. Fortunately, this would not be a long drawn out investigation. The very next day, CP air officials were able to announce that it appeared that baggage blast crashed the plane. Examination of the plane wreckage eliminated as the cause of the wreck almost all sources associated with functioning the plane or its equipment. And this examination indicated the explosion was concentrated in the luggage compartment on the left side of the plane between the passenger section and the cockpit. All of the passengers' remains were eventually located. The last person was Henry Bouchard, who was found a week later, about 300 feet from the wreckage. So within a few days of the crash, the bodies of the victims were released to family and the funerals started to be held. And the Montreal Gazette wrote on September 14th, three hearses carrying the bodies of the Chapadou family, Mrs. Romeo Chapadou, 37, her daughter Florette, 14, son Cla- Jean-Claude, 13, and 11-month-old baby to a service at St. Jean Baptiste Roman Catholic Church, Mrs. Chapadou and her infant were buried as they were found in the plane's wreckage. The mother clasping the, t- the two in her arms, both were carried into the church in a single coffin. Captain Pierre Lerand, thirty year old pilot of the Canadian Pacific Airlines plane, was given funeral services at St. Mary's Church while Mrs. This guy's rites were held at the St. Roche Church, and despite heavy rain, crowds watched the funeral processions. At Rita Guy's funeral, her husband, the one that had put her on the plane, Joseph Albert, brought a wreath of flowers and a five-foot cross of red roses with an encryption reading from your beloved Albert. Uh, He had also been one of the grief-stricken family members that had arrived at the crash scene, towing along with him his two brothers. Investigators start to put their focus on the packages that were on board that day and most of them were pretty easily trackable and able to figure out the contents. So the focus is on that brown paper bag that contained something heavy. Someone in the airline remembered a mysterious looking kind of odd woman wearing all black that had dropped off the package just before the flight was closed up for takeoff. And they managed to find a taxi driver that remembered taking her to the airport. He remembered her as being a bit weird and acting nervous, that she had been overly cautious with her package and had gotten after him for driving too fast. He even remembered the apartment complex that he'd picked her up from, and she was identified as Marguerite Petrie. She wasn't really hard to track down because she was always considered a bit of an oddball. She was nicknamed by neighbors as Mrs. Raven because she always dressed only in black. And she was a rather large woman with a very loud voice. And according to one person that knew her of mediocre intelligence. So she wasn't exactly covert, let's say. Uh, She's, of course, horrified that the police are there talking to her. She tells them, listen, my friend just told me to deliver the package. He said that it was some fragile antique religious statue. Well, who's your friend? Joseph Albert Guy, Rita's husband. I will be right back after these brief messages. Now, Albert had already, a couple of days before, aroused some suspicion because with his wife's body not even in the ground yet, he was already trying to cash in her life insurance. Now, one of the policies was for $5,000, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's about $63,000 today. That policy had been purchased when they got married back in 1941, so totally legit, but he was also trying to cash in a $10,000 policy that he had purchased the morning of the plane crash from none other than a vending machine now when i heard about this vending machine you can believe that i looked it up and it's true that back in 1949 in airports you could buy life insurance for 25 cents for every five thousand dollars of insurance now It was for flights specifically, um, so it would be purchased pre-flight in the chance of a crash during a specified flight. Um, They stopped doing it in the 1970s. It's a very cool little known fact for you, but people were kind of nervous about flying back then, so the companies were making a killing off of these because the chances of your plane crashing were pretty low, um, so they were getting all kinds of money, and then by 1970, people were getting more comfortable with flying, so they stopped doing it. So let's talk about this Albert Guy character because he is a piece of work, let me tell you. Joseph Albert Guy, who went by Albert, as was the Roman Catholic custom of the time to have both a biblical name as your first name, but then to go by your middle name. He was born in Charney, Quebec, which is on the south shore of the St. Lawrence River just across from Quebec City on September 22, 1917. He was the youngest of five siblings, and the family was fairly poor. His dad worked for the railway, but he had died when he was only five years old, and his mom and him and his siblings eventually moved to Quebec City into a pretty rough neighborhood called Basseville, for which the people living there were nicknamed the Mud of Society. Albert saw himself as very above his birth station with ambitions to be a singer or orchestra conductor, despite having talent for neither. Uh, he was a bit of a hustler always, dressed nice, very good manners in order to manipulate people into thinking he was just a good church-going family man with money. Uh, when he was 16, he had a job at a munitions factory, but had always had some kind of side hustles. According to E.J. Conn in his article in The New Yorker, He was a familiar figure in pool halls where he earned a dollar here and a dollar there by selling watches and jewelry on commission to other hangers-on. He amplified his wages, which were $40 a week, by selling jewelry to other employees in the arsenal. He did well enough to buy a car, and he was considered a dashing figure by the young ladies in the factory. And it was while working in this factory that he met Rita Morrell, who became his wife— and also where he met his friend Marguerite Petrie. Albert and Rita had moved to Lower Town, Quebec, which is kind of like a slum, or at least it was at that time. But Rita was a lovely, very well-kept woman with dark hair, and she kind of had this Mona Lisa smile about her. Marguerite was a bit of a salt-of-the-earth kind of woman. She worked mostly as a waitress and took in boarders at her house. She was kind of foul-mouthed and didn't mind telling dirty, unladylike jokes to men. Albert liked her because she was she was who she was with no pretense. Um, she was also quite agreeable to doing whatever Albert asked of her, and she wasn't particularly smart. Rita and Albert had a baby girl in 1945 named Lise, who became the light of Rita's life. And when the munitions factory closed down, Albert decided to become a full-time jeweler. Now, there are conflicting reports on this. Some reports say that business wasn't great, and that he had plans to move the business to Seven Islands, but then others say that because he was charming and manipulative, business was actually booming. Based on some other stuff, it sounds like business might have been booming, but he was also a big spender. So with some money issues and the fact that Rita was now fully enthralled with her new position as mother, Albert struck up a conversation with a young and pretty, although not that bright, 17-year-old waitress named Marie Ange. Now, Marie-Ange knew that Albert was married with a young child at home, but she didn't really care. She liked this 30-year-old charmer and started an affair with him. But she told her parents that he was unmarried and named Roger Angers. And within a year, he was calling her and visiting her at her parents' house under this assumed name with promises to marry her. But one night after Rita got a bit tired of all the neighborhood gossip about her husband, she showed up on Marie-Ange's parents' doorstep and told them the truth about their little ruse. So they threw Marie-Ange out of the house and so she called up Albert who set her up in one of Marguerite's boarding rooms. But when Marie-Ange's parents cooled down a bit, they they wanted her to come back home. Um, But she was pretending that she was living in Montreal at the time. By 1949, she was pretty much done with Albert, who was still married to Rita. So she arranged to have her dad meet her at the train station. But Albert had followed her there and told her to get off the train and come back with him or else he was going to make a scene. So she did go back with him. And just to make sure that she didn't try to escape again, he bit her in the face and then cashed in her train ticket so she couldn't use it. And because Albert was Catholic, the idea of getting a divorce was just crazy talk. And he figured the only way to be happy with Marie Ange was to murder his wife, Rita. So he offered his friend Lucien $500 to visit Rita, offer her some cherry wine, which she loved, and poison her with it. Lucien said, you're nuts. I'm not going to do that. But he also never bothered to let the police know about it. After this, Albert actually found himself arrested for an attempted assault when Marie Ange finally did leave him and he again followed her and pulled a gun on her, threatening to kill himself and her. But he managed to convince her to fly with him to Montreal and he would set her up there because Rita, he said, was planning on having her arrested for damaging his reputation and he wanted to keep her safe until it all blew over. On that flight, Albert sat by the window with his watch, looking out the window and timing the flight's course between land and water. Marie-Ange soon left Albert again, and he was desperate to get her back. He figured that the reason that she'd left was because he couldn't marry her and make an honest woman of her uh, because of this darn wife of his, and thus began a scheme of diabolical proportions. Marguerite owed Albert $600 for something. So he told her, if you help me out with a couple of things, I'll forgive the debt. And she went along with it. Now, some say it was because she planned to blackmail Albert about it later after everything was over. Marguerite's brother, Genevieve Roost. Had impregnated a girl that was bugging him for money, so Albert said that he would give him the money for her and also knock 50% off the price of this $12 ring that he wanted for another girl that he was seeing if he helped him out as well. Now, Roost was eager to help because he had actually tried to ask Rita out one time when Albert was away on business and she'd turned him down. Albert had gotten the idea of this plane crash because of, in May 7, on May 7th, 1949, there was a crash of the Philippines' air over Manila, and he figured when a plane crashes over water, all the evidence goes with it. Hence why he kept flying this milk run, which he did quite often, so that he could time it. So he got Genero to build this bomb, and Marguerite to get the dynamite for it, under the story that she was buying it to blow up some tree stumps. Now, just to show you what a bunch of morons were actually dealing with, Marguerite gets this brilliant idea that instead of this plane crash, they're going to get the guy that lives above her that drives a cab to take Albert and Rita out for this lovely drive out into the country. And then at some point, the taxi driver will get out of the car saying there's something wrong with it. Albert will go and help him out, leaving Rita in the car. And then boom, the car is going to explode. They think this is a great idea. Only the taxi driver said, are you crazy? Like I'm not going to blow up my cab. So realizing that she's now made this huge error, she tells him, oh, you know, I was just joking about the bomb. Actually, I was just hoping that you could take this illegitimate child that I know out of the city. Idiots. Anyways, he had Janeroux set the timer to go off at 1040 on the morning of September 9th, which by his calculations would be when the plane was over the widest part of the St. Lawrence River. That morning, Albert got up really early. He picked up the bomb from Jenneru and addressed it to this fictional person in Bay Camus named Albert Plouffe, and then went to the railway station, put it in a locker where Marguerite collected it and took it to the waiting taxi to the airport, where it was then put on Flight 108. The only hitch in the plan was that Flight 108 was running about five minutes behind schedule, and instead of exploding over water... It fell vertically to the land below, killing all 23 people on board, including two infants and two children. Albert was arrested and put into Quebec's men's jail with an informant in his cell that he told about Marguerite and Genevieve's involvement, so they were also arrested. Albert's trial started on February 24, 1950, to a packed courtroom of onlookers, and the trial went on for almost a month. Most of it Albert kind of slept through, not particularly interested in how planes work or how they explode. The only time he did show any emotion was when Marie-Ange testified that she wanted nothing to do with him anymore. He was convicted on March 14th and sentenced to hang, and that is when the judge had cried and told him that his crime had no name and that it was so heinous. Uh, He did not appeal, so he was hanged on January 12th, 1951. Jenneru was tried and also convicted and sentenced to death for his role, as was Marguerite. Marguerite was actually charged with murder, attempted suicide, which was a crime back then, perjury, and intimidating witnesses. Which that had resulted from her shouting, keep your mouth shut, I have struck before and I can strike again, during her brother's trial. And when she was sentenced, she said, you're mixing me all up, and compared herself to Jesus Christ being sentenced by Pontius Pilate. Jenneru was hanged on July 25, 1952, and Marguerite on January 9, 1953. She was actually the last woman executed in Canada. Unfortunately, Albert's plot went on to inspire a few copycats. In Los Angeles in April of 1951, a technician in an airline's parts factory, he insured the lives of his wife and two children and then attempted to put a suitcase, which contained a homemade gasoline bomb, onto the plane that they were getting onto. But the cargo handler actually dropped the suitcase and it wound up bursting into flames on the ground. No one was injured in that case. In Mexico, the scheme was tried again, and actually twice in Mexico. The first one, the bomb went off in midair, but caused only minor damage, and so the plane was able to keep flying. But the second time, the package containing the bomb was put on the wrong plane. And in that incident, the bomb actually exploded on the ground, killing three airport employees. And that was the tragedy of Sao Kushan. Now, see, Laurie, not so bad. We got through that. It's just a few words here and there. I will be back again next week with another case, which will not be in French or take place in any French-speaking province. But I cannot promise this will be my last. Lots of crazy stuff happens in Quebec. In the meantime, do your rate review thing. And thank you so much for listening.